We are glad that you're here. And over the last several weeks, we've been unpacking and looking at decisions that we make. Um, and, and we've been looking at this through the lens of the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is a wisdom book. It's filled with wisdom for our lives. And not just situational wisdom, but wisdom that makes our lives pattern uh, in, in such a way that, that we're able to make our lives a, a wise life. We're able to make decisions in every situation, not just one-off situations. And over the last year and a half, I don't know what the decision-making front has looked like for you. I know for me, it's been super chaotic, and I feel like there's been layers upon layers that have just been added to that. And um, decision fatigue is a real thing. Um, I know that. I felt like every time that I made a decision that the goalposts moved and that we had to remake the decision or I had to add another filter uh, into my decision-making process. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Um, And uh, I don't don't know what yours has looked like, but I want to kind of be able to look more holistically at what it looks like to make decisions and not just at where we are from the past year and a half, because we need to take the decisions we've made in the past and be able to learn from those so that we can continue to make wise decisions as we move forward in life as well. I just want to say making decisions is not a new thing, right? It's been around since the very beginning of time. You see, we read in Scripture in the book of Genesis, uh, we read there that, that God created man and woman, he created Adam and Eve, and he put them in this beautiful garden And as he put them in this garden, he also gave them all the things they could ever need. He gave them fruit from every tree in the garden except for one in the middle of the garden. And to them, they were like, cool, this is great. And then all of a sudden, they're faced with a decision when the serpent comes. And he's like, look, don't you want to be like God? And so from that moment on, humanity has been faced with decisions, decisions, decisions. Everywhere we turn. In fact, I want you just for a moment, think of a Bible character and think about what is the decision that they faced. Because most of them have a moment where they have to make a decision, if they're going to trust in God or not, if they're going to have faith or not. And I can point to just about any of them and say, yeah, that was the decision that they made. And some of them make really good decisions and some of them make really bad decisions. And there's a lot to be learned from all of that. Proverbs also has a lot to say about these decisions. The decisions we make and those decisions that we make have consequences. And let me just tell you in full confession this morning, since I'm here, I I just want to let you know, like, Proverbs is not my favorite place to preach from. I'm just going to be fully honest and say, like, this is not my favorite, but it's not like the book that I'm, like, chomping at the bit to go to uh, and just preach from. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but Chief among them is, like, it's a pretty straightforward book. There's not a lot of, quote-unquote, meat on the bone there, right? There's not a lot of of things to pull out. Like, it's pretty straightforward. God says, do this. And it's pointed, and it's direct. And while that's great, and I appreciate what it gives, it also is a little bit difficult this morning as a confession to you. But Proverbs has a lot to say about decisions, and so it's important that we go there today. Inevitably, a conversation about decisions, we get to this conversation about consequences. And the other day, I was reminded of of this as I was uh, in the life of a parent. You come to these moments where you have conversations with your kids about 
the decisions they make and the consequences that result from that. Anybody else have that conversation with their kids? No, just me? Okay, well, um, you should probably do that. I'm just going to say, like, as the, I just want to say, you probably need to have that conversation. No, I know you guys have had those conversations. Anybody that's raised kids or that has been around kids, it's a reminder to them, hey, the decisions that you make, the choices you make, they have consequences. And some of those consequences are good, positive things. Some of those are negative and they're harmful and you don't want to make those decisions again. And this week I was reminded of those conversations that we've had because we had parent-teacher conferences this week. Um, And several of you in this room also had those same things going on this week. And, um, you know, there's something really that that I like about parent-teacher conferences. It gives me a glimpse, it gives me a chance to see kind of what kind of decisions my kids are making when they're not with me, right? Because I can ask somebody. I can ask somebody that's there with them in a different setting. And this parent-teacher conference that we had this week, we had with both Brody and Peyton's uh, teachers, and, um, you know, we, we get to see what decisions they make when it comes to uh, their schoolwork and, and other things, but we, we love those opportunities because it gives us the, the glimpse that we need. And while we think the grades that they get are really important, that's, that's very important that they're learning and that they're growing like they need to, but the very first question that, that we ask or that we are concerned about when we walk into that conference is this. We ask, we ask this question. We ask, are they being kind, compassionate, and helpful? Are they looking out for others? In other words, what kind of decisions are they making? Not just right or wrong decisions about the schoolwork that they're given, but what kind of decisions are they making as people? Are they choosing to look out for themselves, or are they choosing to look out for others? And sometimes I wonder how we as adults, most of us in this room are adults. Not all, but most of us are in this room are adults. And I wonder how we're doing in these same decisions. I wonder how we're doing in those same kind of areas. It's easy to look out for ourselves. In fact, I would say that that's the natural thing that we do is we look out for us. We look out for us. And when I look at the world around us, I I feel like we're actually encouraged to do that. We're actually really encouraged to look out for us, to get what's ours, to be only concerned with us and not worry about how it affects other people sometimes. Here's the thing, I've been grappling with this a lot for years, but I've been grappling with with this whole idea for a long time. And whenever you think, well, I don't know that society's really that turned in on ourselves, I just want to give you a quick example. There's this device I have in my pocket. And, uh, oh, I have a message from my wife, that's awesome. Um, So anyways, there's this device we have in our pocket, and it's got a lot of really cool functions and features, and on the back of it here, there's a camera Um, don't judge me because I don't have the newest, latest, whatever, but there's a camera on the back of it, and that's a pretty cool thing. We just have this camera we carry around with us in our pockets, but there's this other camera that's on the other side of the screen. It's the front-facing camera, and whenever you turn that camera on, you see your own face. I'm looking at myself right now, and it's a pretty cool thing, right? And maybe you've seen people around town or other places out and about, and they're out, and they've gotten, they pull out this device, and they turn on that camera, and they hold their phone up like this. Or maybe they 
hold their phone up like this. Or maybe they do whatever, and they take a photo of themselves. Have you guys seen this? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe you've participated. Maybe, that's, maybe you've done something like that. Well, we have a name for that. And that name in our culture, it's called a selfie. It's called a selfie. So whenever you think that maybe we're not that turned in on ourselves, just remind yourself that we have a term for taking pictures of ourselves, and it's called a selfie. I find it kind of humorous, but also really telling about where we are. Despite the fairly recent phenomenon of selfies, our propensity to be consumed by ourselves has been around since the beginning of time. We are naturally curved inward. Our natural state is to think about us. The truth of the matter is that we are naturally that way. And it takes work to turn outward. It takes work to turn outward and look at other people and think about other people. And this shines through in our decision-making. Our decision-making is full of options. And most of the time, one of the first filters we're going to run that through is, well, how does this decision affect me? How does this decision make me feel? How is this decision going to hurt me or help me? How often... Do we make decisions without regard to how it will affect others around us? I would submit to you that we do this fairly often as a society. We're a lot more concerned with ourselves and with our own opinions than we are with others and how what we decide might affect them. However, this morning I want to tell you that there is an alternative. There's an alternative to thinking about ourselves. There's an alternative way to make decisions. We can choose to open our eyes to others around us and choose an alternative narrative to the one that the world offers us, this selfish narrative that the world says we should be following. This narrative is the narrative that's woven throughout Scripture, and it's a narrative that says we should care about other people. And there's specific groups that it tells us we should be concerned with. We should really be concerned with the vulnerable people, the disenfranchised people in our society. We should be concerned with that to the point where we should make decisions based on how that will affect those people, more so even than how it will affect us. By the way, this is really difficult to do. (laughs) This is not easy. But it's the alternative narrative that's woven throughout Scripture. And when we do that, when we begin to turn our eyes outside of ourselves and look, we see pain and hurt and injustice that other people are walking through. We begin to see it if we pay attention. Sometimes we're so consumed with ourselves that we don't even notice when the person next to us is hurting. And it's not like they're just walking around willingly, always saying, like, hey, I'm hurting. No, we have to pay attention. We have to learn to look outside of ourselves and pay attention to what people are going through around us. 
But the beautiful thing is that we have a choice to keep them in mind when we make our decisions. And maybe those decisions are happening in your workplace. Maybe those decisions are happening in your home or as a family. Maybe it's just out and about and you, you have a decision to make where you can look out for the well-being of somebody else. Proverbs 29 reminds us of the impact of our decisions. It reminds us that our, 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 our decisions are going to impact people outside of ourselves. True wisdom will take into account the needs of everyone, even those that are the most vulnerable around us. And today, I, I'm, I'm not going to go through, I think Proverbs kind of lends itself to, to almost picking out certain verses. And today I want to focus in on Proverbs 29, verse 7. And it says this, it says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And as I was preparing for this week, there, there was a lot of directions my mind was thinking as it, as it was, pertains to decision making. And when I came to this verse, the thing that stood out most to me is that the very first part of this verse, it says the righteous care about justice for the poor. And so we should be concerned about justice for the poor when we make decisions in our lives. We should be concerned about justice for the poor whenever we're walking around outside. Why is justice for the poor important? Well, remember that Proverbs is wisdom literature, and it's about more than one-time decisions. It's not saying that this one-off decision you should care about the poor, but everywhere else. No, Proverbs is trying to help us be formed and shaped into wise people. People that react out of wisdom. People that react out of wisdom. Proverbs is trying to create in us an alternative lifestyle. One that looks out for the poor, the widow, the orphan, foreigners, and others in general. And we see Jesus constantly seeking these people out. Whenever we read scripture, when I look and when I think about the ministry of Jesus and who he was after, who he was trying to minister to, he was looking out and trying to seek after those that were vulnerable, the poor, the untouchables. And when I say untouchables, I mean literally untouchable people. Those are the ones he sought out. And when we know a little bit about Jesus and we, we have history on our side, we can, we can have hindsight and we know who Jesus was and what he came to do, we're like, well, yeah, you looked out for those people. But a man in Jesus' position wouldn't be expected to do that. You see, somebody that was in his position as a rabbi, they would probably expect that he would hang out with the religious elite, with leaders with people that were important in society. Yet Jesus didn't hang out with any of those people. In fact, he chose kind of some of the uh, rough-and-tumble people to follow him as disciples. The disciples weren't like the best of the best out there. But that's who Jesus chose to follow him. 
You see, Jesus was out to right the wrongs and to show people an alternative to this world. He was out to bring about justice. And this is the lifestyle that Jesus, he actually lives, but then he also calls his disciples that are following him, that's what he calls them to live as well. Being a disciple today, as we think about what it means to be a disciple of of Christ, you know, in my mind, when I think of discipleship, when I say that word, there's a lot of things that come to mind, but chief among them is like a classroom setting or a setting where we're sitting and we're gaining knowledge about who Jesus was and, and this kind of thing. And while that's certainly important, discipleship is a lifestyle. The disciples gave up everything, their families. They left their jobs to follow Jesus so that they could hear his teaching for sure, but more than that, so that Jesus could model for them what it looked like to love other people, to model for them what the kingdom of God was all about. Now, they missed it most of the time, (laughs) but I would also argue that you and I probably miss it most of the time, too. Jesus wants us to look outside of ourselves, consider others just as important as ourselves. He says in the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, he says this, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He says it pretty plainly, like the greatest is to love God and with everything we've got, but the second is just like it. In other words, like the second is on equal footing with love others as you love yourself. So when we see Jesus model for us what it means to love our neighbor, it looks a lot like caring for the poor and bringing about whatever justice that we can for them. As disciples and followers of Christ, we are to do as he did. We are to do as he did. That's what it means to be a follower. What it means to be a disciple is to do as the master does. In college, I had this opportunity to uh, work for uh, a Christian campground for, for a couple of summers. And I loved it. It was amazing. It was, it was a great time. It was a formational time. And uh, we got to do high ropes course with kids. And we got to be counselors. And we got to talk to them about Jesus and what that looked like to live it out in their lives. And it was a great time, right? And we had these different games that we played. And, and, and Carly and I actually kind of began our relationship at this place. And so uh, she wasn't there one summer, and we talked on the phone like all summer long. Anytime I had a break, I was calling Carly. And that's kind of how our relationship started. And it was awesome. I wouldn't have traded it for anything. But one of the pillars, or actually the, the foundation of the whole thing, like the most important thing that anybody could get out of being a part of this camp, was this concept. It's a pretty simple concept, but one that's profound. And it's just this concept that says, I'm third. I'm third. And so whenever we began to teach and whenever we began to, to be with kids and we would do devotionals or they would, we would be in a large group setting or maybe we'd be on a high ropes course or wherever we were, we would encourage them, like, remember, I'm third. And I'm third means this. It means God first, others second, and I'm third. 
And of course, it's on promotional material. It's out there, t-shirts, it's all the things, right? But, but the concept itself is what was important. We had an I'm third camper of the week. We had I'm third stuff everywhere all the time. Why? Because it's important. Because we are supposed to think about other people. We're supposed to turn outward and see pain, hurt, vulnerability. And not just to see it, but then to do something about it. We can also look at examples of decisions that, with the poor in mind from, from the Old Testament as well. So we've talked about Jesus, and certainly he's a great example. We should turn to Jesus as we look for examples. But there's some Old Testament examples of people that lived this out as well. And one of the first ones that comes to my mind is, is it found in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a great book, and I want to encourage you to go and read the story of Ruth. It's, it's, it's an encouragement. And, and I just, as I think about this idea of justice for the poor and what that looks like, I look at the person of Boaz. Boaz, in, in the book of Ruth, we, we can see compassion in Boaz. We can see what it looks like to care for other people. You see, in, in chapter 2, there's, there's Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, and, and, and Ruth together. And they're widows. Both of them are widows. And they're foreigners, and they're coming to this place. Or, or Ruth's a foreigner, and she's coming to this new place. So they're widows, and they're foreigners, and there's not a lot of way in that culture, in that society, to provide for themselves. There's not a lot of ways that they can do that. And so in chapter 2 we see that Naomi and Ruth are gleaning grain from the fields of Boaz. And gleaning grain just means basically they're picking up the leftovers. They're going through. The only way they're going to be able to sustain themselves is on the leftovers of what the farmers have left behind. And the only way they're able to even have anything left behind is because Boaz practices what I like to call sloppy farming. All right? He practices sloppy farming, which is actually built into what it meant for that people. You see, back in Leviticus, we see God give the command of how they should conduct agricultural business. In Leviticus 19, verse 9, it says this. It says, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vine, and do not pick up the grapes that fall on the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. See, Boaz made a conscious, intentional decision to farm in this manner. He could have very easily ignored that and just, we're going to farm it all. We're going to take up all the grain because that's money, right? That's money. We, we can't just leave that sitting out there. No, we could, that's a lot we could sell. Because when I read this, I read, you know, you're supposed to leave all of the edges, only harvest what's in the middle. If you drop something, oh well, leave it behind. I, you've got to make an intentional and conscious decision to do that. And Boaz made a decision to farm his fields in this sloppy manner. And I, wanted, I want us just to imagine and think for a moment the money that he left out in that field just sitting there? Because then, I mean, think about it in this term too, like, what if not very many people come and actually glean that? Then all of a sudden it's just going bad? 
But he's intentional in what he does. He's intentional in making sure that others were taken care of. When was the last time that you made an intentional decision to look out for the poor, for the disenfranchised among us? When was the last time that you practiced true sacrifice in your own life for the justice of others? When was the last time that you were moved by compassion to do something more than what you knew that you could do for someone that was in need? And I know that as I was preparing for this this week and as I was preparing for this sermon, God was checking me in my own spirit. Because there's something about doing justice for the poor that demands us to sacrifice. When was the last time that I truly gave sacrificially? And I was asking this question this week. And for many, if not most of us, we give out of a place of abundance because we live in a country that has abundance. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for this place that we live And I know not all of us are in that circumstance, maybe, but for the most part, we have an abundance. And it's easy to give out of our abundance. Because that feels good to give out of our abundance. What does it look like to give when it hurts? What does it look like to give when you know that if you give this, you're not going to have enough for what you need? That is what sacrificial giving is. What does it look like to give to a point where it would hurt? In the Gospels, we see this uh, young man come to Jesus. And he's really excited. He's got this energy about him. And he comes to Jesus and, and he's like, Teacher, tell me, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And I can just, in my mind, in my mind's eye, he's like pumped up, he's excited. And Jesus is like, how many energy drinks did you have today? But he's excited because he, he knows in his mind, he's like, look, I've done all this good stuff. Like, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus asks him, like, well, this is what you need to do. He says, you need to keep the commandments and keep the law. And, you know, and this guy's excited. He's like, I've done that. I'm excited. Yes, I've done that. What else? And Jesus looks at him and he says, well, I need you to go and sell all of your possessions. Give the proceeds to the poor, and then I need you to just come and follow me. hurts. In fact, scripture tells us that the young man just turns away and walks away sad. He walks away sad. And I wonder how often are we like this young man, willing to give out of our excess, but when it's going to cut into our lifestyle, how comfortable are we with that? when it comes to justice for the poor and giving to a point where we know that we don't have that to give. That's difficult. It's difficult. 
Making decisions to see justice come about for the disadvantaged and the vulnerable is often going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. And maybe that's not financial. Maybe that's uh, a time ask. How many of you in the last week have said something along the lines of, oh, I'm just so busy? (laughs) I have. (laughs) Just so busy. There's so much going on. And how many of us, when it really comes down to it, when, when we have a demand on our time that, re- that re- requires us to sacrifice for the justice, for the well-being of others, how many of us are willing to give that? These are tough questions that I'm asking myself as well, by the way. It's going to cost us something. Maybe it'll cost us financially. Maybe it'll cost us relationally. Maybe there's an emotional toll to getting involved with those that are less fortunate, that are vulnerable. Maybe it will cost us that time. But our decisions have to be about more than just ourselves. We have to be bringing about justice because it's the example that we've seen in Scripture. We have to be about looking out for the vulnerable. And when we make decisions, making decisions with those people in mind, because if we're not careful, we can pile on instead. We have to be about bringing about justice. But you know what? On our own, we can't do that. When we're left to our own devices, like, we're naturally curved in on ourselves. We need God. We need his grace. We need his help to open our eyes, to be able to see people that are hurting and in need. And I'm here to tell you, I'll be honest, like, this town and this place, it makes it really easy to overlook those that are vulnerable and disadvantaged, disenfranchised, Don't get me wrong, I think we live in a great place. But I think it gets covered up. And if we're not actively paying attention and looking for it, we'll miss it. And so this morning, my encouragement is to open our eyes, to ask the Lord to help us see where we can step in. You see, it's impossible for us to make that decision. In fact, at the end of that story of the rich young man, the disciples are asking Jesus some questions because they don't really understand. And Jesus, finally, he says to them, he says, look, they're like, who can do this? Like, the disciples are like, "Who who can even live this kind of way? Who's able to do this? And Jesus says this at the end of that. He says, you know, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, it's possible for us to open our eyes, to see the hurting, to see those that are in need, and then maybe to do something about it. But we need God to change our hearts and to transform us into people that have compassion and love for one another. We need his help. 
We need God to step in to transform us. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know, you know, what you need from the Lord this morning. I I can't speak to everybody's individual situation. But I do know this. As a people, we need the Lord. We need him. We, We can't do this without him. 